This is Pastor Devin, and I just want to say thanks for joining us, and I hope and pray that this message is an encouragement to your life today. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3 and 4 is where we'll be as you've uh, been with us through this series, Living the Anonymous Life. We've been looking at this idea, 18 years that Jesus lives in anonymity, uh, hidden years, and uh, from the age of 12 to 30. And he appears finally on the scene. The very first thing he does in his public ministry, we've looked at this, as he walks down into the Jordan River, he persuades his cousin John to baptize him. John baptizes him. The Bible says that as Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The very next line, that's the last verse of chapter 3 in Matthew. The very next verse, the very next line in your Bible, chapter 4, verse 1, says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the Bible does not say how much time passes between Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. But it's inferred that not much time has passed. Uh, Jesus' baptism is covered in three accounts of the Gospels. Those of you that are familiar with Scripture, you know that the four Gospels are, are told. They're written from four different vantage points, from four different people's perspective. Three of the four people uh, capture Jesus' baptism. We've already looked at one. Let's look at, at the other one that's even stronger in terms of how he portrays the, the time between Jesus' baptism and this next season. Mark chapter 1 Verse 11 and 12, Mark chapter 1. And a voice came from heaven saying this, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Next verse, verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. I think we can safely assume that it's not too long after Jesus has been baptized that he then is compelled, directed by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. Wait a second. Let me, let me get this straight. He lives 18 years in total anonymity, hidden years, asking his father every day, is today the day? He finally hears, today is the day. The sky is ripped open. The Holy Spirit takes the form of a dove. God thunders his approval upon his son from the heavens. And then he ushers his beloved son into the desert. What? what? I love you so much, son, Now go to the desert. That doesn't feel right to me. I don't know about you. That series of events is a little uncomfortable to me. At at the least, disconcerting, even confusing. Uh, can, Can following God's spirit lead us straight into a desert? Would obedience deposit us into a wasteland? Could... Could God's loving will direct us to wander in barren places? Evidently, in looking at Jesus' experience, this appears to be true. This can so contradict the feel-good, tiptoe-through-the-tulips version of Christianity at times that can be portrayed. Our earthbound hearts prefer to consider how following God leads us into happiness and wealth and health. We even create series on them called The Blessed Life. God led me into the desert. Hallelujah. These are not the things that t-shirts are made of. 
Jesus' first public display is quickly followed by a desert experience. I will say this. Regarding baptism or any declaration of faith or deepening of your commitment to Christ, those will quite often be followed by an attack or a temptation to distract or a testing of what you've just declared. That will want you to make you get baptized, won't it? Yeah. That's what's waiting for me? I'll pass. I've seen it over and over again, friend. Well-meaning believers make a choice, a decision, a declaration to stop doing something, to pursue a more righteous life, to share their faith more, to read their Bible more, to pray more. And immediately, those decisions are met with the enticement, the resistance, obstacles, interference, whatever he has to do. Mark my words. Progress, advancement, breakthrough, and deliverance will not come without a fight. We have a real enemy. The Bible says that his only purpose is to steal and to kill and destroy. He is the thief. He is a liar. And he wants to destroy your life. That enemy is an opportunist. And Satan seems to find his way into the deserts of our lives. We go back to the text. Not only does it immediately follow the public arrival of Jesus, which is then compounded by the reality that he's seemingly led by the Spirit to the desert, but then we see why he's been, been led there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 again. We've only read one verse. Isn't that amazing? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Why? To be tempted by the devil. This just keeps getting better. Thank you, Father God. This is amazing. I love serving you. The, the same translation of the word tempted there is rendered in familiar verses found in James and 1 Peter where they describe the, the unglamorous part of the realities of serving Christ. James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, that word there is same word tempted, same context, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This, though, is the building of the 90% below the surface of the water. It's the unseen part of your life. It's not the friendly part. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, I love how they always frame it, dear friends and loved ones, right before they bring the hammer. <laughs> dear friends... Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. That same trial, that word, same word is tempted. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Oh, this is what he welcomes me to. So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Both James and Peter call us to rejoice when we, like Jesus, experience testing times. They instruct us to anticipate them, persevere through them, and rest assured in them that we somehow participate in Jesus' sufferings together. They can also strengthen our resolve to remember that trials and temptations are really not the enemy. I believe that the hidden years and the choices that Jesus made during those hidden years prepared Jesus to overcome three critical areas of temptation that he faced immediately. I might add... Uh, Satan's basic methods, his tactics, 
have not really changed since Jesus' stay in the wilderness, or for that matter, Adam and Eve's stay in the Garden of Eden. The same tempting invitations have sounded throughout the centuries and still loudly command our attention today. New packaging for sure, yes. But each shiny, modernized package contains the same tried and true tune. We have little information regarding what transpired prior to day 41 of Jesus' time in the desert. The first recorded interaction begins with another one of the great understatements found in Scripture. Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. You think? You think? Uh, Obviously, God's Spirit has supernaturally sustained Jesus up to this point. Otherwise, Matthew may have used another word as a substitute for hungry, something a little stronger maybe. Starving, emaciated, unconscious, hospitalized, ticked off. Don't eat for 40 days. You see how happy you are. This brings us to the first temptation. Number one, the temptation of appetite. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. The tempter came to him and he said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Truth be known, Satan uh, did not care any more about Jesus having a piece of bread than he did about Eve having a piece of fruit. For that matter, He doesn't care whether you crave food or money or sex or control. His focus, friend, is the hook. And whatever fleeting pleasure we experience is worth it from his perspective, as long at the end of it, he gets the hook into us. Here's here's where Satan's lures can be deceptive. This temptation was not about Jesus, can Jesus eat, could Jesus eat as much as he wanted, but it was about when Jesus would eat. Would he obey Father God even when obedience required delayed satisfaction of legitimate need? Here, here is where we witness Satan's skillful use of a most effective lure. The temptation of appetite equals immediate gratification. So what are you hungry for? Does this feel familiar? Sure, this is, this is one of humanity's greatest weaknesses. In our day, we are unapologetically addicted to the immediate, the now. We feel justifiably discontent with delay. I don't like it that I do not get good cell signal in this building. I was trying to send a text standing in this area right here, praying and being very spiritual. And I tried to send the text, and the little green bar at the bottom made it about halfway installed. And I remembered, oh, yeah, terrible signal in here. i got to walk out there. I'm literally, like, like, shaking it to make sure, it, like, can it go? Give it a second. It's going to space. When it comes to our wants, desires, and passions, why should we wait 
when it's in our power to not to. It's in these moments that we disconnect the moment of temptation from all other moments and we dismiss our inner hesitations as overreactions because we rationalize this is only one moment. One moment of splurging or one brief glance or one white lie or one hit. Here's the problem. One moment's start to add up and compound. And they impact the bigger picture of our daily living and they become habits. You know, in our sensory-driven world, it's easy to reduce life to the stuff that we can touch, taste, feel, hear, and see. Such a reduction renders us vulnerable to a deadly form of hopelessness when we do experience pain-filled trials or pleasure-less times. It also leaves us entirely defenseless when our appetites are tempted. Pleasure can anesthetize us against the taste of conviction temporarily. But when it wears off, because it will wear off, that's inevitable, the pain or the shame that we feel reconnects us with reality. And you're stuck with your reality. In response... To Satan's lure, Jesus responds by throwing out an anchor that catches firmly in something immovable, the Word of God. Unshakable. Indestructible. Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I don't know about you, have you ever asked yourself, where was that written? I mean I, I mean, I trust Jesus, you know, that it was written somewhere. You know, if Jesus says it, then it's probably true. Where was it written? Have you ever done the research to see what account is Jesus quoting from? In this instance, Jesus is quoting from the farewell address that Moses is giving to the Israelites a couple months before they enter the promised land. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It reads like this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? to humble and to test you in order to know that was what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live, there it is, on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. I don't know if we like this part. Jesus only cites one line from this passage. But in doing so, he empowers his will with the entirety of that story. The Israelites, if you remember the story, had completely relied upon God to supply their food day after day. Provision would literally fall from heaven. And God didn't allow the people to produce food for themselves. They were entirely dependent upon him. And that helplessness tested their faith. Being powerless revealed what was really in their hearts. Would they or would they not trust God? We we might do well to learn and to glean from this story. Utter dependence, not self-reliance, is the true friend of our souls. Of all the people that had the power and the ability to completely live a self-reliant life, 
It certainly was Jesus. But Jesus passes on self-reliance. He knew it was highly overrated. God's word anchored and strengthened him to choose a better way in the desert when the temptation of immediate gratification presented itself. Temptation number two. The temptation of applause. Jesus refuses to perform a miracle to meet his own needs, but maybe, perhaps, he would be willing to stage a miracle to meet the expectations of others. Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's not forget where Satan takes Jesus. Jerusalem and the temple, the highest point on the temple. This represents the very heart and hope of the Jewish faith. Jesus referred to the temple as his father's house. And let's not forget that he he wept over this city later on in his life. There was great significance regarding the temple in Jerusalem. Personally, it was a spiritual home for Jesus. Socially, the focal point of their culture's faith, representing the presence and protection of God. Politically, a religious symbol carefully monitored by the watchful eye of the Roman government. Physically, where the Jewish people looked for God's Messiah to cast off Roman rule and establish his reign. This, friend, was an important place. What a better place to stage a miracle, a miracle that could be seen and applauded. From the highest point, leaping off would be suicide, but leaping off, leaping off from the roof and being rescued by angels, now that's impressive. Temptation of applause equals man's attention and awe. We all possess a natural longing for acceptance and applause. To be accepted is to be approved of, to to be wanted. Beyond that, the public affirmation of our value, our giftings, our contributions to society. There's something about being celebrated that, that satisfies a deep hunger within our souls. It's not all that bad. We were designed by God to desire acceptance and affirmation. We're ultimately from Him, of course, but also from each other. We are created relational beings. The longing for human affirmation in and of itself is not sinful, but the living for that longing is both self-serving and short-sighted. The satisfaction of man's approval always brings temporary satisfaction. Human favor is fickle and fleeting because you're only as good as your last message. You're only as good as your last performance, your last quarterly report. Early on in my ministry days, I asked a mentor of mine, any thoughts, any, any wisdom? And he said, when they tell you you're great, only take it as a grain of salt. And when they tell you that you're terrible, only take it as a grain of salt. Why? Because human favor is fickle and fleeting in the corporate world and the ministry world too. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Satan says this, 
If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Apparently, Jesus isn't the only one memorizing scripture here. Satan quotes a section from Psalm 91. Of course, he takes it completely out of context, it twists it, and emphasizes God's promise of protection without its preceding conditions or its intended outcome. The premise of Psalm 91 is that God protects us when we hide ourselves in Him, not when we throw ourselves off of buildings. It's a good caution for us, though. A couple of things. Don't confuse reading the Bible with obeying God's Word. Secondly, maybe we should consider the source from which we receive Scripture. Just because they can say it is written. Satan was inviting Jesus to use privilege and performance to win the approval of man. To become a spectacle It's for a good cause, actually. It's not like this wouldn't have furthered Jesus' cause, hastened people's acceptance of him, grown a crowd more quickly. This is what we want. Jesus once again anchors himself firmly in God's word. Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus answered and said, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes one sentence from the book of Deuteronomy once again, words spoken by Moses to the Israelites. This is out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where he says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting Moses verbatim. Jesus refuses Satan's invitation by anchoring himself firmly in God's word and choosing to honor God's ways and to not live for man's awe. Jesus saw clearly that honoring God's ways and living for man's awe were mutually incompatible life motivations. True then, and it's still true today. They are mutually incompatible. The honoring of God's ways and the living for man's awe, oil and water. A couple questions. What do you wish others would recognize and affirm in your life? What is it that you wish people would see in you? What, what could they affirm in you that would lead you to take a deep breath and sigh and say, Finally, I've been waiting to hear them say that for a long time. In what, in what area do you long to be recognized? Contribution to your family. What, what would we do without you? Accomplishments at work. You, you are the hardest worker I know. Even inner character. Boy, you're such an example of what we should all strive to be. Material possessions. Well, you got all the cool stuff, don't you? Money management. Boy, I so admire your financial skills and your budgeting. Could you teach me how to work Excel? <laughs> Physical beauty. You just never age, do you? Intelligence. Even, even growth in your life. I'm so amazed at how far you've come. Sometimes... Sometimes the truth that Father God accepts and affirms and delights in us doesn't feel like enough, so we strive for just a little bit something more from other people. Yes, yeah, we all possess an innate need to be valued and wanted, 
But people's affirmation cannot reach the depths of that need in our lives. Only God can reach that place because He's the one that created that place. Temptation number three. The temptation of authority. The temptation of authority. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. And once again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Luke chapter 4, in his account, says it this way. Luke 4, verse 5. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. Satan was literally offering Jesus the world. In addition to the world's natural resources, Satan offered Jesus the world's political, human, and economic resources. In an instant, Satan showed Jesus all the riches of the world. I'm telling you, that's a pretty good view. All that astonishes, all that amazes, all that the world could possibly boast of could be his. The temptation of authority equals power and possession. Satan was offering to Jesus the right to rule the world. What would, what would you do if you were offered the sole supreme position of ruler of all nations and people on earth. I mean, with that kind of power, I can end child prostitution. I can make sure that no one ever died of hunger again. I could find a home for every homeless person. I could provide jobs for the unemployed. I could pursue justice for the oppressed and persecute drug traffickers and remove abusive world leaders and end wars before they even begin. Those aren't all bad things. That's pretty enticing. And to know the applause that's waiting on the end of those things if you were to do them. Let alone never wanting for anything. Unlimited amount of financial resource. Endless stability, financial security. Some of you are like, forget about solving world peace. I just want to pay all my bills. Is that in there? That's in there too. Earthly power and possession appeals to our innate desire for influence and authority. We all have a natural human longing to make a, a difference in the world, to be a part of something significant. But when that's corrupted, that longing only serves ourselves. When it's kept pure, it serves others. Jesus could have had it all. But it comes like it always does. It comes with a price. Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. Satan says, All this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Satan wanted Jesus' worship. It was worth more than the world to him. Once again, Jesus anchors himself in the word of God. Quotes from a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, here it is. Jesus said to him, I'll say it the way I would have said it. Would you get away from me? For it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Jesus was able to look at all the world had to offer Him. 
all the power, all the possession, everything he could want. Jesus looks at the world and he sees the earth's true riches. You and me. The souls he came to die for. And that Satan couldn't give him. Satan invites Jesus to sell his soul to purchase the world. Jesus had come to suffer for sinners. Satan suggested that he sin to avoid suffering. Jesus had come to die for the world. Satan offers him the world without having to die. And that's not why he came. You remember, years later, a couple years later, Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Satan, Satan asked Jesus to trade the eternal for the visible. The temporary for the eternal. Which is something he still invites us to do today. He continues to offer us the world in exchange for our souls. Occasionally, occasionally he still uses mountaintops. But more often, he shows us the view from, from laptops and checkbooks, boardrooms, corner offices. He takes us behind closed doors and onto trading floors and up on stages and in front of microphones. And he entices us with all the world has to offer. Satan customizes his offer for each person. The view changes, but the price, my friend, is fixed. I promise you that. Question for us to consider in this third temptation. What, what could he show you that would tempt you to bow down and worship him? Oh, I would never do that. Really? Think about it. Where does he take you to entice you to forfeit your soul? What if you never had a financial challenge for the rest of your life? What if? What if you never even had to worry about your bills being covered? It's just taken care of. You wouldn't consider it? Satan had greatly underestimated what had been growing in Jesus during his hidden years. What was determined in the desert and how Jesus responded was directly correlated to what had been determined before the desert. In the hidden, unseen places of his life, allowing the things that we talked about last week, the anchor of God's word, self-control, a disciplined mind, trusting in God's timing and an accurate portrait view of who God is. He allowed those things to take root in him. You know, in closing in this four-week series, I pray that it's been an encouragement to you. I pray that it's been challenging to you as well. To fully experience the incredible riches of hidden seasons, we must rediscover, reclaim, and probably redefine the word rest. Most of us, if we will admit it, are severely rest-impaired. 
And understandably so in a culture that touts busyness as one of its highest virtues and commodities in society today. Because it's just not cool to not be busy. You know, when someone calls you and they ask you how you're doing, what are you doing? It's just not cool to say, eh, nothing. I'm just resting. Really? Loser? Right? Why do we value perpetual busyness? When busy, we can easily mistake being productive for being disciplined. When in reality, we may just be driven. Driven by deadlines, fear of failure, perfectionism, the desire to avoid disapproval. Don't get me wrong. Don't mishear me. You should be driven. You should want to get up and work. But perhaps the greatest danger of busyness is how it offers itself as a substitute in our lives for intimacy with others and especially with God. Because intimacy is emotionally invasive. It requires knowing and being known. Who has time for that? Whenever I'm disappointed with my season of life, my spot in life, I'm reminded of the little story of the boy who was trying out for the part in the school play. His mother knew that he had his heart set on being in it and being involved in it, but she feared he probably was not going to be chosen. On the day the the parts were awarded, the boy rushed up to his mother, eyes shining with pride and excitement, and he said, Guess what, Mom? He shouted, and then these words, I've been chosen to clap and cheer. When, when you have been chosen in a hidden season to clap and cheer, not front and center, how do you respond? I tell you, it's an incredible opportunity to grow. No matter what season you find yourself in today, hidden or not, choose to allow your roots to go deep. Resist the rushing And seize the opportunity to discover how you were uniquely designed to walk intimately with God. Settle in. Take a breath. Savor the season. Respect its potential. Trust in God's good and perfect timing. Keep the waters of your spirit sweet. Be still. What's that old song? Be still and know. That I am God. Be still and know. That I am God. Be still and know. That I am God. When you've been chosen to cheer and to clap. The hidden season of your life. Be still. Rest. Grow in him. Thanks again for joining us. If you want to join us on Sunday, we meet at 10.30 a.m. right next to Wilson Central High School or check us out online at connectchurchtn.com. Thanks so much and have a blessed day.